0: is on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right guys today we've got a special interview and this is with Father Mike Schmitz. Okay so you might be thinking to yourself well you've never had a Catholic priest on the podcast before but I just got to tell you guys I really enjoyed this conversation. I was really looking forward to it and I'll give you a little bit more information as to why that is but first let me just kind of read a little bit about his bio so you can get a little idea of who he is. Father Mike Schmitz is the director of youth and young adult ministry for the Diocese of Duluth, the chaplain for the Newman Center at the University of Minnesota Duluth. He was ordained a priest in 2003 after attending the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity at the University of St. Thomas. Father Mike provides podcasts of his weekly homilies on iTunes and BulldogCatholic.com. He also appears in programs targeted toward youth and young adults for Ascension Press, as well as as regular short videos on Ascension Presents. He's got a lot of stuff on YouTube, guys. He does a lot of things, but th- this is kind of how I got introduced to him. Okay, so uh, just to kind of set the context, this is at the end of 2019, so I had already recorded my best podcast of the year, uh, you know, podcast episode. I would kind of already done all of that, but then I had a buddy of mine named James. He he sent me some, uh, some podcast information and different things like that, but one thing that he did is he sent me the UMD Newman Catholic Campus Ministry Podcast for the 22nd of December of 2019, and it was called Available and Capable. And, you know, this is a buddy of mine. He's Catholic. I'm Protestant, but we'll share some stuff back and forth sometimes. But it's, I just wasn't expecting this from him. And I was like, he's like, dude, I I really think you'll dig this. So, so give it a try. I mean, the the podcast was 25 minutes long or something like that. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll listen to it. And so I turned it on and nothing grabbed me initially. Right. So there wasn't some sort of crazy introduction to the story or something like that. But then it got crazy good. And I mean, crazy Good. I, I loved the, the force with which he was talking. I loved the subject matters he went into. Um, he didn't seem like he was terribly concerned about offending anybody, which obviously is appealing to a guy like me because you got to have a little bit of that in you, and a little bit of that bulldog in you. But it was just such an interesting conversation to me. And I talked about it with my buddy. I was like, dude, that was amazing. And then I just kept listening to it. I don't do a whole lot of repeat podcasting. That's not really something that I do. So I'll save podcasts so that if, you know, I need to go back someday, I'm all caught up on all my podcast shows and I just need to go check something out. I will check out something that I've listened to before, but I just kept listening to this one. And I think it was after the third or fourth time I listened to it. I was like, okay, I got to reach out to this guy. So I was able to, you know, track down his contact information, invited him on the podcast. He was more than happy, happy to come on. And I was so excited guys. I just got to tell you, like, preparing for these podcasts. Again, whenever I prepare for a podcast, I want the the guests to be as comfortable as possible and to look as good as possible. Because part of the time when, when someone being interviewed doesn't come off well in a podcast, it's because the people preparing the podcast didn't actually prepare. They're just like, Oh yeah, I read their book or I heard, you know, their, uh, you know, their sermon once, or I read a tweet and I'll just kind of flow with it, but they're just not good at that. And so just in the researching of getting this podcast ready to go just so I could talk to him, I just got even more excited because, because again, he and I are going to disagree on, on a lot of things theologically just, just by the virtue of the fact that he's a, a you know, Catholic priest and I'm a Protestant, right? Just a regular dude that just you know, does a podcast, right? But I, I really, really enjoyed this podcast. There's some tremendous nuggets on this podcast, but especially at the end. Okay. I pull out a couple of different segments, some, some kind of new stuff that I want to kind of try on some of my guests and it couldn't have gone better. I couldn't have tried it with a better person. And I think at this point I've done enough to sell you on the fact that you need to listen to this interview all the way through. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Father Mike Schmitz, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast.
1: Thanks Kyle. I appreciate it.
0: Well, hey, we're, we're so excited to have you on here. You're, you're the first guest of your kind that we've had on this podcast, but we're we're so excited to have you. And we'll get into kind of how I get, even got turned on to you here in just a little bit. But just from the beginning, I'm, I'm always hyper curious when somebody's in any type of vocational ministry, kind of what called you into that vocation to to live a vocational ministry life? And then more specifically, you do a lot of collegiate ministry. So what kind of called you in that direction? Yeah,
1: yeah no, I think uh, great. that's a great question. I think um, I always say that, you know, I was raised uh, in a Christian family where it was important um, that we, you know, prayed every, every day that we read our Bible, that we uh, um, went to church on Sunday. And I guess I would say, you know, growing up, I'm like, I kind of want, I'm, I'm one of six kids and right in the middle. Uh, Wow. Okay. uh, Yeah. So three girls, three boys. And so I'm the middle of the middle. So I'm the middle boy as well as, you know, right in there, number four. Um, And uh and so it was kind of a thing of like, I saw my older siblings, I saw them, you know, messing up. I saw them getting in trouble. I'm like, oh, you know, if I just avoid doing what they're doing, I'm I'm not pretty easy life. You know, it's just kind of like that. And I kind of, it kind of it had me settle into kind of this idea of being a good kid. Um, and so it was kind of like, even when I came to church, it was like, well, I mean, I'll go, I don't like it, uh, but I'll be a good kid. You know, that, that kind of a right. mentality. And uh, that all changed um, when uh, I was about 15 years old. 15, 16, somewhere in there. And um, I had an awareness. It was it was one of these, like, I, I call it a moment of grace where um, it was like, I knew the commandments because, you know, my parents have been teaching me stuff and I've been going to church. And um, I knew those were, those were things out there. Like, yeah, don't do these, break these rules. At one point, I just had this awareness that like, oh my gosh, that's what I do. Like, like that's in me. And, and it was, it was a matter of going from, um, like, oh yeah, I hear, you know, Jesus is the savior. Okay. Got it. Or whatever. Um, to being like, oh my gosh, I need a savior. <laughs> and it was like everything that they had been telling me up to that point clicked. And I'm like, sure. oh my gosh, like this is exactly he, yeah, that's what I need. I can't actually forgive myself. I need God to forgive me. And so that set me off on this, uh, like, I, like I need to pray and I need to, I uh, get to know him. I need to like find out like, what is it God actually wants for me? Um, and so, uh, I, I, did, you know, I, I started this and I remember at one point it was very, very clear because I just experienced God's forgiveness in an incredible way. Um, and, uh, I remember thinking, so we have an, in, in Catholic church, we have this sacrament called confession. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to confession. And and so I remember getting on my bike, uh, it's 15 years old. So I r- <laughs> rode my bike across town to where the priest lived. like, you knock on the door. It was 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. I remember this. And, uh, Knocked on the door uh, and he opens because he, of course, of course he's home. Cause you know, priests will only work one day a week. And, oh uh, <laughs> and I was like, Father, can I go to confession? Oh, sure. Come on in. Went, you know, went to confession. I, I And I left that house and I was like, God, if you want me to be a priest, I never thought about this before. Like if you want me in ministry, if you want me to be a priest, I will, I want to be there for, I want to hear, any, I'll hear anyone's confession anytime they ask, or I want to be there for someone whenever they ask. Cause I'm so grateful for what you've just done for me. Like I just, it was, it was. Basically, this desire for ministry born out of gratitude for what God has done for me. Um, so that first thought was, God, thank you so much. Second thought was, if you want me to be a priest, like I I'll do it. And my third thought was, oh, she's really cute. Like, so <laughs> of so, course I don't yeah. know if you know this about priests, Kyle, is that they don't get married. And so Yeah, that's
0: true. That's true. We'll talk about that. Don't
1: worry. <laughs> and so I was like, man, okay. I mean, that began this up and down kind of thing of like, God, I I am grateful for you and I need to. To know you better and better and i actually i want to be your hands and feet in this world um and uh and also i like girls so what I, uh what do i do here and not that you couldn't i mean but this particular kind of ministry like you said this particular vocation uh is you know metal after jesus and after saint paul not having gotten married so um uh there's there's that uh and that just kind of came every day I kept asking God, God, what does he want me to do? And, you know, I dated a bunch of girls and, uh, then would, would be praying a bunch. And at one point I went to college, uh, to study theology because I was like, well, uh, regardless, like God has to be the center of my life. And, um, regardless of whatever, whatever he calls me, I want to, I want to talk about him. I want to teach, I want to serve. Um, so if he doesn't want me to be a priest, I still want to be able to, uh, um, yeah, I just want to, I want to know everything I possibly can about God. Sure. Um, and then I was a missionary after I graduated, I was a missionary down in Central America, uh, and I was teaching and, um, and it was, there's a long story there, but, uh, I was engaged to get married or getting ready to get married when I got back from, um, Central America. And I had this, another moment of real clarity, real grace, where it was just absolutely clear that God was saying, um, like, this is where I'm inviting you. Uh, I, I'm. I'm asking you. I'm. I'm inviting you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go to seminary, uh, the Catholic seminary. And uh, I was like, okay. And it was. It was an incredible. It was. It was a gr- crushing moment because I was just absolutely in love with this girl. Um. But at the same time, it was an incredible moment of peace and of like, okay, yeah, this is what he's calling me. This is. This is God's voice calling me to take this next step. And so uh, it was, you know, tumultuous in that sense of this being heartbroken, but in the other sense of. Um, being uh, this is God's voice though. See, you have to do it. And then I went to the, you know, back to seminary or to seminary to study theology and philosophy, uh, for the next, uh, six or so years. And then, um, once I got ordained, they, uh, we have a bishop here and he said he wanted me to work with college students and he wanted me to work with, um, our high school and junior high students. And, um, so after a quick two years in a, in a normal congregation, normal parish, um, I got assigned to the University of Minnesota in Duluth, and uh, that's where I've been ever since. That was a uh, 2005, so I've been here for 15 years, uh, doing college ministry and doing high school and junior high ministry, um, which all have they all have. <laughs> They all have their high points. They all have their low points. Junior high. Sure. The, the high point is they're awesome. The low point is they all stink. Right. <laughs> they're like they awful haven't, at being they human. Haven't learned, but, uh, yeah, they, yeah. They haven't learned how to shower yet. Um. You know, and uh, high school, super great because they can be so quick to like uh, respond to the gospel. Um. But also they can be so quick to just kind of do whatever their friends are doing and kind of do go the eat go the the, the they can be turned on really quick to the Lord and they can also be turned off really quick. And then college students, uh, again, I just, I love working with college students because they're in that place in life where it's just like, they're asking the big questions of why am I here? Where am I going? What am I supposed to do? Um, who am I, who is God? And I just love being here for them.
0: And that's that's amazing. I appreciate you going into such detail on that story because I mean the the reason that I even found out about you was because of a podcast that was posted on the University of Minnesota Duluth Newman Catholic Campus Ministry podcast. I had one of my buddies, James. Shout out to James who sent me your episode. And the, the weird thing about the episode is this was the episode called "Available and Capable" from yeah. the twenty second of December of last year. And I had already recorded my best podcast of twenty nineteen podcast, and then I listened to this one. I was like, "Dang it!" because it was such <laughs> it was such a good episode, but for so many different reasons, because at the beginning, I wasn't exactly sure where you were going, but but essentially kind of the overall idea of the podcast was basically, are you available to God to do what he asks? But then even if you're available, are you capable of doing what he asks? And so I'm going to get into a few sections and I'll of course include the link here at the end for guys to check it out themselves. But one of the biggest things, one of the earliest takeaways in that speech that you did was, that Joseph is normally depicted as an old man in artwork that he's mm-hmm. normally depicted as kind of this d- decrepit old man with young Mary and all those types of things. But you, you talked about how, if we can make Joseph weak, then we make him safe mm-hmm. and how that affects our culture with all this kind of, you know, nonsense about toxic masculinity. And the proposed solution is basically just make men weak and then they'll be safe. Right. But yeah. then also you you had this quote that I just loved. It's mom's if you're raising boys, you want your boys to be dangerous. You want your sons to be dangerous men. It is one of the things we're actually called to be. Men, would you rather be nice or would you rather be good? Would you rather be fine or would you rather be dangerous? And and, and that speaks to me because my wife is in our, her third trimester, And she's about to give birth, Lord willing, to our son, our firstborn. And that's just an awesome thing to hear. But can you go a little bit deeper into that concept for us as to why you talked about how Joseph is depicted and then also how that kind of carries through into culture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So historically speaking, uh, um, Joseph has always been, uh, virtually always been depicted as an old man because, um, in the history of the church. So even back, uh, the ancient, uh, the the church fathers, they would talk about how, um, that Joseph and Mary had not consummated their, their marriage, that Mary was a virgin, not only before Jesus, but after having given birth to Jesus. And I know that there's some discrepancies because wait a second, this doesn't say that Jesus, Jesus had brothers in, in scriptures. And we can get into like the, the, uh, uh, Interpretation of like the Greek adelphoi, which can mean brother, but also can mean cousin, um, in there. But uh, the tradition is that um, that Joseph and Mary, Joseph, Joseph were there, and they never consummated their their marriage. So one of the ways that artists have depicted Joseph to make it so that uh, oh, that makes sense because he was just so old that he would. <laughs> either be um uninterested in young mary or incapable of um having a sexual relationship with young mary and sure. it's 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 basically instead of like no joseph was so in control of his sexuality joseph was such a man who actually had virility but also control of his virility that he had like self mastery like let's just make it so that he uh He couldn't have done anything like, again, he was either disinterested or incapable and you realize, oh my gosh, is that, is that the model? Like in any way, shape or form in any of the heroes of scripture, um, is it ever, you know, they did the right thing because they couldn't do the wrong thing. Or um, the thing that made them great was that they were uninterested in doing the wrong thing. Like, no, every single hero you and I have ever been uh, a fan of, ever b- been moved by, inspired by, has been someone who absolutely recognizes that dark spot, dark place, place in their heart that would want to use and abuse someone that could do the wrong thing and had the ability to do it. But was able to harness that energy, to harness that danger, harness that uh, a power to dominate, in order, in order to use it as a power to serve. And I think that that is just uh, it's it's massive. It's so important because it reframes um, not only Joseph, but it reframes like the call of every man.
0: But it also, and I completely agree with that. It goes into what we call virtue, and you actually talk about that a little bit later in in the uh, in the speech that you gave. You basically talk about it's not virtuous to be reckless and just do whatever, but it's also not virtuous to be weak. And I feel like now we get the idea that in order to be virtuous, you have to be weak. But you talk about you know true strength and true virtue. Like virtus means manly strength. That that's what it means. But also, you go into a beautiful description of Jesus actually describing himself in the Gospels, and he describes himself himself as meek and humble. And obviously in a modern context, we think of meekness meaning weakness, but you also talked about the process of meeking a horse. When you meek a horse, you tame it. You you harness the horse's strength, power, and ability. You don't just get rid of it. You don't just delete it. But there was a great quote here uh, from here, and then I'll get your, your comments on it. That's what it is to be meek. It's all the power you could possibly have, but under control. Jesus, when he says, I am meek, he is not saying I'm weak. He's saying in me is all the power of the divine being under control and at your service of those who need to be protected. So how do you feel like we've gotten the message or the meaning of meekness so wrong in terms of how we apply it today?
1: Yeah, isn't that crazy? Uh, isn't, it, isn't it so interesting that um, I think one of the only reasons why we would have um the word meek in our language is beca- probably coming from the gospels. I mean, uh, we here's Jesus describing himself as meek and humble of heart and as interpreting that as meaning weak. Um, and I think also there's, a, there's an element too, if when we do make that connection with like, no, actually the, the term comes from uh, meeking a horse. Um, we often think of breaking a horse. And and so there's, there, can be, there can be these two kind of dichotomies. One is um, this, like you said, that, that recklessness, that kind of uh, complete, uh, like the, the rogue, the wild stallion, um, not Bill and Ted, but um, right. the wild, yeah. the, the unbroken, the untamed, just the, that out there. Or the broken horse, like even, we say even like the tamed horse. And meekness is somewhere in between, um, where a broken horse is, I mean, just think about it, like... Um, who is someone with a describe someone who who's been been broken or someone with a broken will like there's like oh yeah, they're done like they're not going to keep fighting they're not going to keep going they they they've they've lost they've given up broken um so you break a horse yeah cuz it, it can't fight back anymore it won't versus meeking a horse which would be again not necessarily the same thing as taming it and not the same thing as breaking it I guess maybe it's the same uh, action but it's not the same uh description to be able to say, um, yeah, we have not. This horse still has all of the power it had when it was that wild stallion, but now that power is again under control. That power is at the service of the one who has mastery over it, and that sense of like, man, how many, um, how many men, particularly when it comes to uh, uh, their aggression. Or when it comes to their uh, sexuality, when it comes to their strength, um, keep being told to like either yeah, just like you know, as the world might say yeah, get out there if you have the strength, man, use it, just go crazy. If you have that, you know, that sex appeal, that whatever that thing is, like hey, as many women as you possibly can use, go and use. Or the uh, broken, the do not use the um not not use but don't don't even use your strength versus this this virtue lies in the middle, right? So that virtue that would be um, all of the strength, but not used to dominate, um, not dissipated, but that strength at the service um, of the people in your life. And I just think that this is remarkably important, particularly, um, I think you might even reference this, but um, Dr. Uh, uh, Doctor Sass, Dr. Leonard, Leonard Sachs, who wrote about uh, the book, Boys, in The Book Boys Adrift, um, have you read that book, Kyle? Uh,
0: well, that is on my list to read because whenever baby boy gets here, it's like, all right, I got to start protecting yeah. you from all these people that say you're going to be evil just because you have uh, male Honestly. genitalia, but right. it is certainly on the list.
1: Because in, in that book, he talks about, he says, our, our, what our culture has sold us is it sold us this idea that either um, men or boys are either the, uh, the brute, like the, the kind of the thug who just kind of like dominates or the slacker dude. Um, the kid who's just like, whatever, it's fine. You know, it's completely chill, completely calm. Now that might be someone's temperament. Like they might be aggressive by temperament or they might be calm by temperament. But the idea that these are the only two options, uh, because temperament's not character. That's the thing is, uh, temperament's just kind of the raw material that we're born with. But then under Christ, it gets forged and character gets get, temper character gets forged out of temperament. And so we have this sense of like, okay, here's someone with a lot of strength. I use it to dominate others. Or here's my strength, but I just don't use it at all. I just, you know, whether to play video games or do, I just don't use it. You don't have to play video games. Um, There's a middle way. And that middle way would again be all of the strength, not dissipated or wasted, and all that strength not used on myself to dominate, but all of that strength I have at the service of the people in my life. And so that's one of the things, like, I think is just so important for young men to recognize. I, it's one of, one of the things, reasons I'm grateful for having siblings, um, many reasons grateful for having siblings, is um, growing up then, it was like, okay, put your, Mike, put your strength to work for your little sister. Put your strength to work to help your older brother. Put your right. strength to work to take, okay, I have a little brother who's 10 years younger than me. And so that sense of like, okay, here I'm 10, and okay, you're in charge of uh, the one-year-old. <laughs> like, oh, 11 now, you know, in charge of the one-year-old. I'm like, okay, I, as a boy, am entrusted to care for this baby. Um, you know, for my mom would say, you know, take care from 20 minutes kind of thing. Like, okay, I can do that. Um, but that sense of like strength at the service of others, not wasted and not used to dominate, but um, harnessed
0: when I'm with you in the fact that I would agree with a third wave feminist on the definition of toxic masculinity. If it's only the categories that were, were given in that you described, right? Yeah, The, The dopey guy. And there, there's a lot of different people that have looked at it. It's like the person who's completely overwhelmed with their carnal desires or the person that's just completely disinterested in life in general. Yeah, that's absolutely toxic, but they never describe the virtuous man and that even being an option. And another thing that you get into and you've alluded to it a little bit is just the overwhelming concept of being a father. And you, you say from the very beginning, if you're a man, you're called to be a father. Mm-hmm. And the, you you have this great way of describing you know, good dads pour their strength out uh, of their youth for their wives, for their kids. And there's a dignity in that whenever you spend your youth on your wife and your children. And it, that's one of the great things about old dads. But you also get into this talk about how so many men have had their strength stolen from them. And some of them don't even realize it. you talk about male lions that are fighting for alpha status over the pride. And when they do so, they go after the other lion's genitals because they know if that lion can no longer father, that they're out, they're out of the gene pool pretty much. And so, But, but you make this direct really challenge to a lot of men, which is that most men have their strength stolen from them by pornography Mm -hmm. and that the devil has castrated men by using pornography. And most men don't even realize it. They're like, ah, you know, I'm just looking no big deal. But the thing is, is that's the thing that makes you available, but not capable because you're available to hear what God can say, but you're not capable. Can you go a little bit deeper as, as to why you, you used pornography as kind of that main example for how men can have their strength stolen by the Devil.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, well, you know, I quoted uh Peter when he said, uh, your opponent the devil is prowling like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, resist him, solid in your faith. Um, and that that it seems to me one of the reasons why I would use pornography is because my work with high school students, college students, young adult men, and then men who are now getting married. And the fact that pornography is so rampant, right? It's it's like it's got, I think what they call the three A's. It is available. It is affordable. It is anonymous. It's sure. just like it. It is everywhere, and so it's it is incredibly rare. I think right now the uh, first uh, the average age uh, a boy will have seen his first pornography is I think seven years old right now. I think it might be the the average age uh, that a, a, a young person, it might just be boy or girl, would encounter pornography is at seven. Um, and now we have these magic rectangles that live in our pockets and have access to. Everything, and I just think about like the way in which, I mean, just to think about the fact that, uh, in, in the average American uh, male who is exposed in an average way to pornography, has now seen um, more naked women than all of his male ancestors combined. Sure. Yeah. Of course. And that sense of like, okay, that does something to our minds. It does something to our hearts. And I don't think what it does is something that builds up our minds or builds up our hearts, but it distorts them. So I was talking with this young man, um, who had come through college here and a couple of years ago, and, and he's a fit guy and he, he likes to, uh, he's a personal trainer and he trains for competitions and this and that. Um, and he's, he's in love with this woman, but, uh they've been dating for a while, a number of, about a year, and she wants to get married. And he's like, I I, I love her and everything, but I just, I sometimes find myself uh, wondering if I could do better. Um, and like, better, and I was talking about like a better how, like, and he's like, well, not, no, we get along super well, we get, but just better, you know, physically. And I'm like, okay, well, that a, that's a good question to be able to ask in the sense of the fact that like, are you attracted to her? Because you should be. <laughs> right. Um, but is it a matter of because I know his story, and was, was like—is it a matter of the fact that that's what the internet does? Is I'm done with this woman, click on the next thing because that's someone better, because newer is better in this in this scenario, uh, and it distorts the man's mind and distorts his heart to see his uh, bride as um, as just another in a long line of naked bodies that I've seen, and how quickly we can become dissatisfied with the person that I've entrusted my entire life, my entire heart to, because why? Because if I click, there's a newer body, there is another body, there's a better body. And it just, it makes a man incapable of giving his heart and giving his whole mind, giving his whole self to one woman because he has trained himself in selfishness. And he's trained himself to see women as um, simply being there to give them to serve him to give themselves to him whatever he wants kind of a situation and what that has done is it said okay now and it's under the illusion right of masculinity it's under the illusion of like oh this um i'm, I'm so manly i look at porn I, I love women so much that this is what i do but it's made them incapable of doing what a real man true man actually does which is um not simply uh have sex with a woman but can father that child um can love her Uh, to the end. And, and, and that's the insidious part of it. What gets sold to us kind of as, as men as like, you know, porn being kind of a masculine thing, ultimately in the end ends up emasculating most men.
0: I mean, emasculation certainly. And even beyond that, some men, they they get so entrenched in it that they, they end up you know, serving, they end up serving pornography. Mm-hmm. I've heard so many stories about these people that, you know, it was first, it was a playboy that they hid in the woods when they were 12. And then eventually they got into, to kitty porn or rape porn. Mm-hmm. And then they, even the porn wasn't doing it for them anymore. So they had to try the real thing. There's a story I remember about a guy that literally tried to rape a woman because he was like, wow. I'm not getting off to the rape porn anymore. And mm-hmm. you've, you've seen different organizations like Pornhub and how they, they are basically helping traffic, in young women and young boys, because there are these, these little girls that they can't verify their age. They just let these, right. these evil men upload these things to to the internet and then everybody can take a look at it. But I think that dovetails nicely and, and we'll, we'll move on to other subjects outside that podcast because I want everybody else to go listen to that episode. But for you. You're a man that you mentioned it from the top that you've taken a vow of celibacy, but you don't feel necessarily called to a life of celibacy technically because you're still attracted to women. You've talked about (laughs) before that you still have that attraction. There wasn't some sort of magic switch that was flipped by God that, oh, all of a sudden I just look at people as these random orbless beings that just kind of move (laughs) around. But but for you, and I think this will be helpful to our listeners, but also to any of the, the people that you minister to in your area, how do you control your sexual desires? Because just because, you know, you are a priest that doesn't make you any more different than any of us in terms yeah. of the desires that you feel. So how do you control that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm glad, thanks for like uh, asserting that, that piece of it. Like, no, it's just as there's no magic switch. Um, and as I said, like I, uh, had been planning on marrying, uh, this woman and you know, the other girls that I did before, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember, I remember I, that, that same woman, uh, I remember I would just still be able to describe in like, if I was talking with someone that to be honest with and to be vulnerable with that, um, I probably was in love with her, uh, still when I was in seminary, maybe even after I was ordained, uh, and just like, yeah, no, absolutely. And so the big question is like, hey, so what is, what, what is celibacy? What's at the heart of it? Um, what it looks like from the outside at the heart of celibacy is no, like no to, um, no to women, no to sex kind of a thing. Um, and I guess that's part of it, obviously, but that'd be similar to looking at marriage as being no, like marriage is just simply, um, I'm married to Jessica and that means no to everyone else. Well, that's part of it, but it really is a yes to Jessica. You know, it's a yes to that, that, that wife. And as often as a man comes back to the yes versus comparing all the no's and weighing out all the no's, um, here's that woman at work and like, ah, she's really attractive, but no, like, okay, you have to say that. No, versus I keep my eyes on the bride that I actually want to live for, want to lay my life down for, um, that's a way that heart grows and a heart grows free. And so that's one of the things that happened. That's been, I've learned, I guess, but pain, painfully, I guess in some ways, cause it's like, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this? Um, he's like, he's like, keep keep your eyes on me and keep serving. One of the things, so two things. One is recognizing that um, he's invited me to do this. And as often as I do it, I'm doing it for him. So one example um, or a story, I guess. I remember my uh, first Christmas that, uh, I was ordained and I, so I preached at, at church that, that Christmas Eve and it was at back my home, my home church. And so like my, my brothers and sisters are there with their families and my parents and all these people I grew up with. And I got done and, and mass was over and, and they're like, Oh, that was great. You know, you really found your vocation. God's really called you to this. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. I love Jesus. Um, <laughs> we went back home that night, my parents' place and, uh, you know, went downstairs. It was kind of what we did on Christmas Eve. And, um, we're all open presents and hanging out and having a good time. And I got up to leave and I went to the other room and there was a photo album on the, on the counter. And I just opened it up and I opened it up to this page. There's all these pictures from a couple of Christmases before that, where I was there and it was same scene. It was the Christmas Eve. And there was uh, the woman that I'd been planning on marrying. She's, you know, in all these photos. And I like, it, it was a gut punch. I felt my, literally fell to my knees and I was like, Oh my gosh. I just was like, cause I knew if one thing was different, if one thing was changed, um, I'd walk out that door and she'd be right there, maybe with our child or children. And right. uh, I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, so I you know, made myself presentable again and went back out into the into the living room and and uh, finished the night. And you know, so my my brother goes up to his room with his wife, and my sister goes to her room with her husband, and I went to room with my room with my sweaters, and, <laughs> and I knelt down and prayed and just like God, okay, what's going on? Like, what is this? Like, I thought that I'd resolved. All this stuff. Like I thought that that the, earlier today, God, I was so grateful that you had called me to this. And right now it is so painful that you've called me to this. And uh, in that moment, it was one of the top moments of grace in my life because it was, it was in that moment where God was like, yes, you were very excited to say you loved me when people were praising you and when it felt good. I'm inviting you to love me even When it hurts, I'm inviting you to love me in this particular way, even when it means you've said no to some other things, even when you said no to, and her name was Melissa, even when you said no to Melissa. And, and I was like, oh, well, God, yes. In this case, in that case, yes. Like let this hurt, let this ache be for you. Um, and let this be kind of a way in which I can actually love you better. And so it was, it, that, that was a big translation of being able to, instead of looking at all the no's, all the women I'm saying no to. Just to look at him and say, "Ah, oh, this is giving me a chance to say yes to you, God," in and in a different way than a lot of other men get to say yes to God. Um, and the, the second thing was, um, as I mentioned uh, in that in that talk, um, the, what's the difference between men and women is that uh, women are the kind of human who is meant to be a mother or is can be can be a mother, uh, and Men are the kind of human beings who can be fathers. And uh, so people look at like my life and say, okay, you're supposed to celibate. You're not not married, but you can't be a dad. And one of the things that's such so mysterious is... um, You know, we call priests, well, in the Catholic Church, we call priests father. And it's like, well, why do you do that? Is it kind of this authority thing? And so I felt super uncomfortable when I was first ordained, like these 80-year-old men saying to the 28-year-old me, hey, Father Mike. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I feel comfortable. But what's happened is, um, you know, in in ancient Israel, uh, the father of the family was the priest of the family, or the priest of the family was the father of the family. And so fatherhood was intensely rooted in fatherhood, even back in the Old Testament before the Golden Calf episode where that was all transferred over to the Levitical priesthood. It was, if you were the dad, you're the priest of the family. And so fatherhood and priesthood are so intimately connected. And I would have to, I have to admit and confess that for years I didn't get that. Um, and I'm so grateful that God has let me be on campus here for so long, because when I got here, I was just a couple years older than some of these students. And now I'm at the age of their dads. And uh, it is, it is the most incredible thing to be able to like realize, God, I understand ministering to so many of these young men and women doesn't just mean giving a good sermon. Doesn't just mean kind of being quote unquote available or, you know, giving good counsel. It ultimately means being a dad to them. And, and that is, that is like so fully changed my heart, uh, to recognize that even in the celibacy, even in that, you know, not having biological children of my own, that here's God inviting me deeper and deeper. So a couple of years ago, the students, you know, it just kind of naturally started doing this. I was like, Oh, I walked in the door and they're like, Oh, Hey dad. And I'm like, Oh, oh <laughs> I right. oh, just like, I'll, I'll be back just one second. Give me a moment. And that's become really common now. And I'm just so moved and honored because I mean. I mean, I'm sure Kyle, you're going to get this at some point when your son is able to say, "Dad," and it's just like, that's that's it. That's who I get to be. Not just I'm not just provider. I'm not just defender. I'm not just the guy who teaches you how to ride. The- to be a dad, to be a father, is to be all those things, and um, to be a spiritual father is to be, is ultimately supposed to be all those things as well. I think.
0: Well, I, I love that answer. I especially love just to go back and, guys, if you you should probably re-listen to that that part where you, when people focus on the nose, just just really focus on the yeses. Whenever it comes to your sexual purity, focus on the things that you do have. But but real quickly before we move on to any other subjects, uh, because I know this is an issue, we do have uh, some ladies that listen to this podcast. What would you say to women out there? This is this is in the vein of manhood and toxic masculinity and all that. What would you say to the women out there who are struggling to find that good strong man? Like they're, they're considering maybe, you know, lowering their standards or whatever, or, you know, just ignoring some of the actual toxic things that are being mm. spewed by the guys they're dating. But just, just quickly, what would you say to those women?
1: Yeah, I would, I mean, two things just right off, off the cuff. I would say one is not to lower your standards, but to be willing to change your expectations. And what I mean by that is the standards are there for a reason. I mean, the standards are there because you know that, um, there is a difference between a man who is uh, willing to serve and a man who's willing only willing to use. Um, There's a difference between a man who's like pursuing the Lord and a man who's like, okay, kind of sort of okay with God. (laughs) Like that's one of the things I'll always, you know, some of the women that I'm working with, one of the the challenges that I'll be willing to challenge them with is um, like, is he, he's okay. No, he's, he's okay going to church with me. I'm like, that's great. I'm glad he's willing to go to church with you. Um, If you weren't there, would he be there? Like if, if you didn't bring it up, would he be, Run, racing after the Lord, um, because that's a big deal. That's that's gonna that's gonna determine a lot of things. Uh, I'm glad that he's willing, but wouldn't it be great if he was uh, helping you rather than you kind of taking on your project? So, not lower the standards, but maybe having the willingness to augment one's expectations. What I mean by that is, um, there's the list. <laughs> so my old one of my older sisters, uh, she had her her list of like. Uh, it was really simple, because um, she knew what she was all about. She was all about she. Right now, she's an orthopedic surgeon. She's gone. She's done the Ironman uh, World Championships numerous times. She's been like incredible athlete, incredible trainer, incredible doctor, great mom. But she, um, she knew her, she had her clear, very clear standards about the kind of man that she'd be willing uh, to marry. So she never changed those standards. But her expectations um, column was she never wanted to marry. She she had two, only two things in the expectation column. Um, he had to be taller than her and, uh, he couldn't have red hair. Oh, okay. And See, sister- I have red
0: hair. That is not appropriate. Yeah. You tell Sorry her that's that. not appropriate.
1: Well, so she learned that, um, it wasn't appropriate either because her husband is, she's, my sister's five, nine. Her husband is five, nine. And he, we call him fire because he has red hair. So- yes. Yes. <laughs> there you go. In, so in this though she didn't lower her, her standards but she did she was willing to change her expectations like oh my uh, a manly man has to look like this or a man of god has to act like this like no he might actually be rougher around the edges than you might expect like he might um he, he might be less rougher around the edges than you would expect like that sense of uh, character rather than characteristics i think uh is the is one of the keys so don't lower your standards for his character but you might be open to changing your expectations about his characteristics that's what all I'd say I guess
0: right certainly good advice. Uh, Now we'll, we'll change, uh, change subjects just here a little bit. And obviously I think this is important to, to talk about, and I'm sure you've had to talk about it a lot, but when, when people think about the Catholic church, and especially if they're outside of the Catholic church, some of the things they think of first are not exactly nice things. They think about some of the sexual abuse scandals, especially uh, back, back uh, a couple of years ago, I recorded actually episode 37 of this podcast was called the devil and the Catholic church, because I was talking about what had come out of that grand jury testimony uh, from the state to Pennsylvania and the, in the Mm -hmm. long thing that they did and how that was basically not a, a thing that was, um, focused just on that one area. It could have been a lot of other areas and, um, you know, people think about those scandals and they think about kind of the cover-ups. Obviously people have made a lot of to do about the lavender mafia, as it's called about, you know, these men uh, that are homosexual, but also very, very important and in important leadership positions within the church, because there does seem to be an issue with homosexual clergy. And then that kind of exacerbates some of the other issues we've talked about, but how I I guess, and I hope this question is fair because I mean it to be, how is the outside world to trust the Catholic church? How is the outside world to take seriously some of the declarations of morality within the church? Yeah. Uh, you know, does it make it harder to communicate to your flock? Because I know Ireland had a, a really big problem when they just approved uh, abortion in their country yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. And it was because they basically told the Catholic priests, oh, I'm so sorry, you've been raping boys. We're not going to listen to you. That's, you know, that, that was some of the things people were saying, some of these nasty things. And in some of the cases they were correct. But do you find it harder to communicate with, with people about morality when people just want to point at these examples.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that's, that is without a doubt. Um, uh, true because it's at any point we want to like take a stand and say, um, this there's right and there's wrong. Uh, there's good and evil, particularly when it comes to sexual morality, like all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, you're one to talk kind of a situation where it's like, yeah. Um, it, uh, I remember uh, 2004 was when I was uh, ordained, and that's also the time that the scandal in Boston and other places broke. And uh, I remember very, very clearly on um, the night I was ordained, we went to this, uh, there's this German restaurant in the Twin Cities, uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, uh, that my family would always go to. We knew the owner. The owner was this great Polish, Is <laughs> interesting, he, he's a Polish immigrant who's named Mario, who... With an Italian name, who runs a German restaurant. So, <laughs>
0: of course, <laughs> makes perfect sense.
1: But you know, I went, we went to this, and just kind of celebrated. Yeah, you know, here. So this is the first time I'm wearing like clerics, you know, like the the priest gear with the white collar and everything. everything. Um, and I get up to go to the bathroom, and I walk by these guys, or maybe about my age. And we're walking by them, and I hear this, "Huh, job molester." And I was mm. like, I was like, oh. And as I walked, and went, to, they went to the bathroom. I was like, oh, that's. That's what life is going to be like now. Like that's. Uh, I mean, first part of me wanted to like stop me. Like, are you kidding me? You know, kind of this. <laughs> thing. Um, but uh, but I was like, oh, that's what. Okay. And I just, like, there were times, you know, then from then on, I mean, it's been oftentimes where you go to the grocery store and here's the the mom who takes their kid and puts them on the other side of them. Like, I'm like, I just, you guys, I have never done anything like this. You know, this, that you want to defend yourself and want to get angry. Uh, of course, I'm angry at the the men who did this, obviously, but you kind of want to angry at people who uh, are, are thinking badly of you. But that's not, that's misplaced anger. The anger really goes to the heart of um, a, like you said anyone who did it, and then B, anyone who would have covered it up, um, and so that's been that's been a, a ever since the very first day I was ordained. That has been a thing that I've carried every single day. In fact, when I put on the black shirt every single day, um, it's like, yeah, this is not a badge of honor. This um, is often by so much of the world is uh, seen as a sign of. whether it's perversion or weakness or disgust, you know? Um, So yeah, I think it's weakened uh, in many ways. On the other hand, not on the other hand, at the same time, at the same time, um, I can't, I'm not going to like cry in my soup about this because about the fact that like, um, yeah, it makes it more difficult because it's a reminder to me every single day of not only do I need to be better, do I need to be, have more and more virtue and be the example of the men I wish they were, those other guys had been. But secondly, um, I cannot feel badly for myself to getting looks, you know, getting negative looks or people thinking that uh, maybe he's a guy who would do this kind of thing because there has been so many people who have been hurt by men who dressed like me, uh, by men who professed the same faith that I professed. Now, whether they believed it right, and just failed to do it, or they didn't believe it, but used um, the teachings of the church or their authority to, to abuse people. It doesn't, I mean, it matters, but like what I put on and, and think like, again, we in this and people think badly of me, like there are these kids who they didn't do anything wrong. And uh, they've had to live with this every day. What I have to do is so much more, uh, so, so much less than that. And so um, that's the first thing. Now, I know that's kind of far afield from what you asked about. Uh, you asked about, is it hard to proclaim, uh, uh, teach morality in the midst of this? At first, yes. Ultimately, um, if someone is willing to, I, I think when it comes to preaching, if someone's willing to trust you in any way, shape or form, um, then they're willing to trust you. And if they're not, then the goal of the the job of the preacher or the priest or whoever it is, is to... it's. Um, est- say that establish in reality that you're worthy of trust, I think. Um, but if you want, there are probably more questions behind that. So I'll, I'll let you open that back up.
0: Well, I think that's a, that's actually a fair answer because the thing is, is there's not a correct answer. And at the end of the day, um, you know I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan as an example. So if you've been assaulted by somebody that wore a St. Louis Cardinals hat and then you see me wearing a hat and it brings up those bad memories, that's not my fault. Yeah. But I, that, that's kind of a silly kind of micro example. But the thing is, is you can only be responsible for who you are. But from the outside world, you're a group. And everyone right. sees yeah. you as like, oh, well, you're one of those guys that wears the black shirt. And I remember that. And there, yeah. there's nothing that can be said to take away those things. I'm just glad that we don't live in this, this post-Christian world where all these, all these people, you know, if, if you're an evolutionary biologist type person or that type of thing, there's no concept of justice. There is no cosmic justice. Mm-hmm. There, there is no way that every tear will be picked back up. There's just pain. There's just pain with these little uh, cracks of of happiness every now and then. When you find an extra twenty dollars, or when you kiss a girl for the first time, like it's just it's this worldview that it's an impossible thing to answer. So I think it's a fair way of answering. But uh, even to to kind of move on here because we don't have all day to to go too far into all that, and and even with this question as well. One of the things is for me as a Protestant who did not grow up in church, kind of grew up in a family that, you know, we were we were Oklahomans and so we were Christians by birth, I guess. So it's just kind of <laughs> right. one of those things that just happened because you were born in the middle of the country. But for me, I, I do have some some hangups and, and now's not the time to get into an, a, an exegesis of all these things. But I have I've some hangups and a lot of my friends have some hangups with some certain Roman Catholic doctrines. But for me specifically, the, the concept of the Pope uh, the Assumption of Mary and Purgatory are, are some of the ones that just come up to mind yeah. for, for me more often. And for me, the the thing that's so difficult is I can't find defenses for these things in scripture. And again, I, you don't need to break down all three of those, but, but for someone on the outside, looking in, looking at the tradition, Roman Catholic tradition and doctrine, why do you believe in things that seemingly don't have a direct a correlation to anything in scripture?
1: Yeah. And that's a great question. And we can, I can look at a couple of those, those examples too. I would say um, that everything, so all, all of our data for theology comes from, uh, Divine revelation, right? So all of the data we have comes from divine revelation. So there's not going to be something that's contradicted in scripture. You have the question of uh, wh- where do you, how can doctrines exist if they're not explicitly found in scripture? And the first doctrine I would say that is really important to say is found in scripture is the first page, like the table of contents. And like, wait a second, how'd you get that page? Because because that page of the here's the books of the New Testament, here's the books of the Old Testament. That's that's only in our modern Bibles. That's not like they didn't fall out of the sky. Those are, you know, 73 books or 66 books. Um, why these books? And you go back and say, okay, well, there's a historical foundation for that. And the historical foundation is not only the fact that they were used by the early church and whatnot, but in uh, the year uh, 298 in the Council of Carthage, the Catholic Church said, these are the books. These 73 books are the books of the Bible. And like, okay, so... Even the very the very notion of this is the Bible as the word of God is fantastic. I'm on top. I'm behind that. A- amen. All of that. It is the inerrant, um, complete word of God. Yes. But how do I know these books? And that's why St. Augustine, you know, in the fourth century, he even said, I would not have believed in the authority of the gospels had not the Catholic church told me I could believe in the truth of the gospels. And so that sense of like even the, the veracity of scripture comes from the authority of the church. Um, so that, that that first piece, um, even if you say, like you, you go back and say, you know, all Christians, we believe in what we believe in the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We'll we believe that now, but um, early on in the, you know, thir- third century, fourth century, one of the biggest heresies was by a guy named Arius, and Arianism was massively, had taken over almost all of the the, the church at the time, where people right. were like, Well, Jesus isn't fully God and fully man. He's like half God, half man. Well, how do we, how are we so certain? Because right? Arius was reading the same Bible. And you realize, okay, it was the Council of Nicaea in 325, where the Pope and the bishops came together and said, No, no, no. We definitively state that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And every Christian puts their faith in that, in that interpretation of the Bible. Because, you know, all those kinds of pieces where there's um, even the Holy Spirit being. The third person of the Trinity from the Council of Constantinople in 381. It's like, okay, the, you can read the Bible now with that lens of like, of course, that the Holy Spirit is fully God, but you can also read it from a different perspective and say, oh, I don't know. And but if we're going to say we absolutely are absolutely certain that Jesus is fully God and fully man, even though he says the Father is greater than I, no, 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 that's that's this interpretation where um, in his humanity, the Father is greater than him. Okay. But how do we know that unless there was an authority that said, this is the authoritative interpretation. Um, and that comes from the, and every Christian accepts that. We accept the list of the books, the Bible. We accept the authority or the incarnation as fully God, fully man. We accept the Trinity. Um, that, that basically is saying is we're accepting, at least in those cases, the authority of the Catholic Church to interpret scripture or to even give us the scripture um so when you get to the the pope uh, fantastic matthew chapter 16 you have the uh, time where jesus goes up to caesarea philippi and um he asks who do they say that i am and well some people say you're elijah sometimes jeremiah one of the prophets um who do you who do you say that i'm and simon says you're the messiah and jesus you know scripture says uh blessed are you simon son of jonah Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my heavenly father. Therefore, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Will you bind on earth, bound in heaven? Loose on earth is loose in heaven. And so there's the, course, Simon being his name changed to Peter. Now, the interesting thing about Caesarea Philippi, I'm not sure if you've ever been to Israel, but at Caesarea Philippi, there is this massive, massive rock, and into this rock are built at least three temples. Like, it's it's huge. And so here's Jesus who goes all the way up to Caesarea Philippi to ask this question, who do people say that I am? And when Simon answers right, he says, I mean, Jesus didn't have PowerPoint. So it makes sense that he had this visual demonstration of here is a rock upon which a church is built. And he's saying, you, Peter, are now rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He goes on, though, and this is the part that directly relates to our modern understanding of the Pope. He says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, will you open, no one shall shut, will you shut, no one shall open. That is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 21 and the role of uh, the al habait or the um, head of the house, um, the prime minister of the, in the kingdom of, of Israel. So the prime minister is like the steward, like the steward of Gondor in the uh, Lord of the Rings, right? So Aragorn is the king, but when Aragorn's gone, uh, the steward is in charge. Jesus is the king. And when uh, the king is gone, here's the steward. And Jesus at that point references and says, Peter, you are the Al-Haba'i, basically. You have the keys. Because if you go look at Isaiah 21, what you see is this role of the steward. And Jesus in, sorry, in scripture uses the exact same wording. Um, He'll have the keys to the house of David on his shoulder. What he shuts, no one shall open. What he opens, no one shall shut. And so in that moment, we are like, oh my gosh, this is completely, you imagine that the apostles right from the very beginning would have said, Jesus just made Simon, I mean, slash Peter, the Al-Habayi. Because at that point, especially Matthew's gospel, you know, it's all about Jesus is the, uh, the king, and he's establishing the kingdom uh, on earth. And so all these kingdom references all throughout Matthew make sense then ultimately in Matthew 16, where he says, yeah, here's the kingdom I'm establishing. I'm also giving you the keys to the kingdom, just like the Al-Habait or the prime minister did in uh, Isaiah 21. So that's just a quick, and there's some more examples there too, where after the resurrection, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Even though he's the good shepherd, he tells Peter, you have this particular role um, amongst the uh, the flock. Or even in Luke, where Jesus says to Peter, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has a desire to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you specifically, Peter, that after you have uh, failed, you'll come back and strengthen your brother. After you've returned to me, you've come back and strengthen your brethren. And, and so the church has always seen uh, that role of uh, Peter he's one of the apostles, but the first among the apostles as being unique. Um, So there's more to say about that, but I just kind of wanted to kind of point out a couple places that where we could get the idea of the Pope from the Bible.
0: Well, there's certainly uh, more to say, and this is just kind of what I do. I ask these gigantic questions and pretend you can answer them quickly just so I can get (laughs) you on for a second time or something like that. So I'm sure down the road, we'll be able to check some more of that stuff out. So obviously, you know, I'll try my best to to get you on here again to where we can go a little bit deeper on those topics. But right now I want to kind of do a couple of different lightning rounds. And, And the first lightning round of questions is what do you think of blank? And I'm going to insert a person and you've got 30 seconds, 30 seconds maximum on each one of these people to just give us and the listeners a quick hitter as to what do you think of these people? So are you game
1: for that? I'll i do my best. Hopefully I know who you're talking about.
0: I'm assuming you'll know most of these people. So okay. all right, first one. What do you think of Jordan Peterson?
1: Oh, uh fantastic. I am really grateful for his teaching. I'm really grateful for um his uh his witness to truth. Uh so Twelve Vers for Life is is a I think a fantastic book. And um I uh yeah A plus.
0: A plus. All right. Yeah. You're, you're doing well to keep it under 30 seconds. Cause that, that, those are the rules. Those are yep. the rules. All right. What do you think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer?
1: Oh man. Uh, when I read Eric Metaxas's book, uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, it's it, I prayed with that f- probably for at least a good half year. Um, just, uh, I loved, uh, the book and, uh, fell in love with that man. Yeah.
0: That guy's a gangster. He's one of my heroes. All right, next one. What do you think of C.S. Lewis?
1: So uh, I can hardly get through a conversation without quoting two things. One is The Office. The other is C.S. Lewis. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, C.S. Lewis, you even have that in your email uh, signature. You got C.S. Lewis right there.
1: Yeah, so I I can hardly get through a sermon without referencing at least either him or something that he taught me in the course of my reading of uh, his works.
0: Awesome. What do you think of Pope
1: Francis? Um, I think he is the pope.
0: Okay. Well, next one, <laughs> kind of like the last one. What do you think of Pope Benedict?
1: I, Pope Benedict taught me so much. Uh, I had, um, so I grew up with Pope John Paul II, and just like, yeah, what a great uh, role model. It seems like a great. And then I was like, oh, who's you know Cardinal Ratzinger? Okay, fine. Um, and then I had to study him. And when I read Pope Benedict stuff, it is absolutely crystal clear. It is so meticulously thought out so thought out in depth, um, with not only the he's, I think he's one of the greatest theologians of the last century. Um, yeah,
0: I'm a big Pope Benedict fan. So, all right, next one. What do you think of Donald Trump?
1: I think, uh, I like Ben Shapiro, how he goes, uh, he talks about good Trump, bad Trump. Um, I think that he has, unlike many politicians, he has done exactly what he said he would do. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful because a lot of things he said he would do are things that I would get behind. Um, At the same time, sometimes I'm like, oh, why do do you have to say it? Why do you have to say that? Like, why do you have to tweet that? That doesn't seem to, even like if you were like trying to get people's, push people's buttons, sometimes when my mom accidentally texts in all caps, I'm always like, oh, (laughs) mom. And so when someone tweets in all caps, I'm always like, oh, buddy. So I, I appreciate when he's done what he said he would do. And I sometimes wish that he would not say the things he says.
0: All right. Next one. Contrastingly, what do you think of Joe Biden?
1: Um, Sleepy Joe? Sleepy Joe. That's the one. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, gosh, I can't imagine uh, voting for him. I would say that. I, I just I don't have a lot of confidence in, you know, it's hard to say you have, it's hard to bring up uh, character after um, Trump. Um, as as a as a important thing for Christians to to look to when it comes to our political leaders, um, but I would say that it seems in his life as a politician, he's also demonstrated that uh, maybe a lack of a, a solid character as well as a solid plan to, uh, to help. He could be the vanilla that um, America needs in the sense of like, hey, we can all agree we like vanilla, right? Yeah, okay, sure, let's yeah. have vanilla. Maybe that but that would be the only the only route I would say to kind of endorse someone like Joe Biden is like, okay, this is going to unite everyone. Why? Because no one hates him that much.
0: <laughs> gotcha. One quick thing uh, as a follow-up to Joe Biden, before I ask you about this last person is, would you allow him to take mass in light of his outright and full-throated support of abortion?
1: Right. So that, uh, if someone stands in public opposition to uh, a church teaching and, and not only public opposition, but has advocated uh, the exact opposite, they, uh, they should not uh, uh, they should not present themselves, to receive holy communion. And um if someone were to do that, that would be a, a tough call, but it would that would be the the right call is to uh um deny someone uh who is in public and prison. It's like you know what Saint what Paul was writing about in First Corinthians chapter five. He's talking about that man who's living with his father's wife. It's like, yeah, um, by the very by the witness of their very life, they've revealed that they're not in communion with us. So yeah.
0: Fair enough. Thank you for that answer. Last one on this lighting round. What do you think of Martin Luther?
1: Um, I, uh, good question. I think that, um, uh, there had been many times where the church needed to be reformed, um, up to up until 1500 and since 1500. Um, and without it was done without revolution and it was done where it, it was done by saints. And, um, I wish that Martin Luther had been a saint, because I wish that, because the, the result of the Reformation is now 30,000 different denominations, um, when there had been one church for 1500, years. and I think that it began a, uh, a, a series of divisions and began a series of uh, um, we, we should be united as Christians, and I think he started the division.
0: Okay. I think you and I should read uh, Eric Metaxas's book on Martin Luther and then have another conversation about it. But thank you for going through all those. There is one more lightning round left and and I will give you this quick one. This lightning round is called, what would you say to someone that said blank? And these are going to be statements that I've heard said about just society, about the church, about you. And the thing is, is I'll give you twice the time. I'll give you 60 seconds (laughs) to answer these, but I will warn you, these are big topics, but the reason why I want to put them in this lightning round concept is because sometimes people like to get a little flowery with their words to try and soften the blow of what they actually believe. I'm a pretty direct guy. The guys on this podcast appreciate directness. So these are huge topics. Each one of these topics could probably be its own hour long podcast, but I'm forcing you into these parameters as long as you accept them.
1: All right. Thunder round.
0: Okay. Let's do this. (laughs) What would you say to someone that said we could get rid of the Catholic priest sexual abuse problem if we just let priests get married?
1: Um, I would point out that uh, most sexual abuse happens uh, by married men. Um, that, that's the, that's the, the simplest. Uh, that there, the, the John Jay study uh, reported that actually uh, Catholic priests—the abuse in the Catholic priesthood—is si- not significantly, but it's less than. Uh, or equivalent or less than in all of the denominations. So every church and every synagogue uh, has uh, abusers among its clergy. Um, in fact, if you the the chances of a child getting abused in the, the public schools is a hundred times greater than they are from being abused in uh, by a Catholic priest or in a Catholic church. Um, so celibacy uh, is not the problem, um, and letting priests get married is not the answer.
0: All right. Appreciate the answer. What would you say to someone that said women can be priests too?
1: I would say only, da- only men can be dads. And the heart of the priesthood is fatherhood.
0: Next one here. What would you say to someone that said it is not a sin to be gay?
1: Um, I would uh, agree that it is not a sin to have certain feelings or have certain attractions. They can be a sign of, um, our human, our fallenness as human beings. Um, it's not a sin to want to lie, to get out of a situation. It's not a sin to say, "I, I, I, I'm attracted to women other than my wife. Um, but it would be a sin to act on those, uh, desires. And so, uh, that would be the distinction I would want to make first.
0: All right. What would you say to someone that said you can be Catholic and support abortion?
1: Um, I would, I would have to ask them, uh, what is your basis for saying that? And they could say like, maybe they're a good natured person, a good hearted, good-willed person. And they say the basis for saying that is because we need to take care of women. And I would say, I agree. We need to take care of women. Um, you know, how many women are aborted every, uh, week, every month, every year in America? Uh, so I think we need to take care of all women, but I also, uh, disagree that we don't just need to take care of women that are born. Um, and ultimately you a person can't uh, be Catholic and endorse or support abortion.
0: Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, there is no difference between Catholics and Protestants. We are all just Christians.
1: I would say we are all Christians and um, that's the truth. But if there were no difference, then why aren't you Catholic?
0: And then I would ask you, why aren't you Protestant? <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I gonna say we were here first.
0: Okay, okay, that guy. You're the guy that gets there first. You, you called shotgun before everybody else, but I, but I got to the car first. All right, next one. What would you say to someone that said, "I cannot believe in a loving God that condemns people to hell"?
1: I would say that, um, I, of course, on these things, I'd always first ask a question. So I'll I'll, but I'll just launch into my response. I'd say only a loving God. Uh, in order to, for in order for God to be loving, uh, hell has to exist. And the reason why is because um, this world has suffering and sin and brokenness and evil in it. Um, Why does God not remove all evil from this world? Why does he not just remove all sin and sinners from this world? And the answer is because he allows us to be free. Um, God allows us to be free. He respects our our free choices. Um, So in order to preserve our freedom, God allows the possibility of evil in this world. So... I believe that when people die, God just brings everyone to heaven. Okay, well, that's a—that's what someone would say. Like, okay, well, so you're saying that at the hour of your death, the moment of your death, God is gonna overwhelm your free will and take you to heaven even if you don't want heaven? And you say, well, yeah, because that's what a good God would do. Good. So a good God would would let you, let you live in this world where you have choices, but basically at the end of your life say, you don't really have a choice when it comes to the most important thing in existence, you don't have a choice. So basically that rules out and over overrules all other choices you made in your entire life. Uh, if at the end he's gonna overrule that one choice for him or against him. Not only that, but if he's gonna do that at the end of our lives, then why doesn't he just move up the timeline and do that before the child gets abducted? Why doesn't he do that before all these people go to war? Why does he do that be, why doesn't he if he his plan is to overwhelm our free will at the end of our lives, then why doesn't he just move that up? And if he doesn't move that up, if he doesn't, uh, overwhelm our free will before we do something evil in this world, that is truly evil. If he's planning on overwhelming our free will at the end and he doesn't over overwhelm free will now, but allows us and forces us to be in this world of pain because uh, our choices don't matter, then that's actually the more evil thing. So the existence of hell and the fact that we can choose it is the only thing that preserves God's goodness.
0: All right. You went a little over on time on that one, but I will allow it because you answered my next question, which was going to be, I cannot believe in a loving God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world. So the problem of evil. So I appreciate that. Just a couple of more here. What would you say to someone that said Catholicism is long on tradition, but short on theology?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I I would ask them if they've never read any Catholic theology um, because it goes back 2000 years and it continues to develop and it continues to have people who, um, uh, dive deeply into that. So I, I, you know, I would say this. I would say that there are some theologians who are pretty shallow, uh, and, I, and I would say that there are some of us Catholics who uh, might appeal more to tradition than to uh, theology or to the Lord. But um, I would say, as a as a church, and even as a theological system, um, it uh, it would be an interesting claim. I would have to ask for like, show me what you're talking about.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, this is the last question of the day, and perhaps the most important question that you could be asked. What would you say to someone that said, "Father Mike Schmitz is a YouTube star"?
1: Um, I would say, "What? What's your definition of star?"
0: <laughs> well, my, hey, like, I'm not the one. I've heard someone else call you a YouTube star, so this is all you, man.
1: My my uncle uh once uh, said so he's also my godfather. He said uh he said you know it's what did he say something like uh, it's easy to be uh, a rock star when everyone else is Lawrence Welk. Okay, <laughs> and I said, I said, okay, I got gotcha. you. That kind of insults all my brother priests, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> no, I would say that, like uh, compared to what? Yeah, so I don't know.
0: Well, Father Mike, we have talked about a lot of different subjects today. Yeah. We've covered a lot of ground, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest?
1: I'm just grateful for the the conversation.
0: Father Mike Schmitz, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, God. There you go, guys. I really hope that you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed recording it. But before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing you guys content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for today, I'm going to go through the links that I'm going to provide for you. That podcast episode that turned me on to Father Mike Schmitz from the beginning, I've got that available for you. I've got just a link in uh, iTunes link to the UMD Newman Catholic Campus Ministry podcast, and he also has. Another podcast called the Father Mike Schmitz Catholic Podcast. Yeah, uh, I got a link to his website where you can kind of check him out. The UMD Newman about Father Mike Schmitz, so you can kind of look at his bio and other things there. I've got a link to his Amazon because he does have some books that he's contributed to. A link to his Twitter, and then I've got three different videos that you can check out. Two are these sermons that he did or these speeches that he did at these conferences, and one is a video called Offstage, and this is just a guy that's just kind of like kind of doing a day in the life of Father Mike Schmitz, kind of a thing. So I thought that that was interesting. Thank you guys very much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. We're we're getting a couple of non-five-star reviews. We don't want those. We only want the five stars. So leave us five stars and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020 and into the beginning of 2021. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, whatever, hit me up info at Undaunted Life. Again, that's info at Undaunted Life. The website is www.Undaunted.Life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.